Chapter Fifteen of Travels with a Donkey in the Cévennes by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick Wallace. In the Valley of the Mimante. On Tuesday, first October, we left Florac late in the afternoon, a tired donkey and tired donkey driver. A little way up the Tarnon, a covered bridge of wood introduced us into the valley of the Mimante. Steep, rocky red mountains overhung the stream. Great oaks and chestnuts grew upon the slopes or in stony terraces. Here and there was a red field of millet or a few apple trees studded with red apples. And the road passed hard by two black hamlets, one with an old castle atop to please the heart of the tourist. It was difficult here again to find a spot fit for my encampment. Even under the oaks and chestnuts, the ground had not only a very rapid slope, but was heaped with loose stones, and where there was no timber, the hills descended to the stream in a red precipice, tufted with heather. The sun had left the highest peak in front of me, and the valley was full of the lowing sound of herdsmen's horns as they recalled the flocks into the stable when I spied a bite of meadow some way below the roadway in an angle of the river. Thither I descended, and, tying Modestine provisionally to a tree, proceeded to investigate the neighbourhood. A grey, pearly evening shadow filled the glen. Objects at a little distance grew indistinct and melted bafflingly into each other, and the darkness was rising steadily like an exhalation. I approached a great oak which grew in the meadow hard by the river's brink, when to my disgust the voices of children fell upon my ear, and I beheld a house round the angle on the other bank. I had half a mind to pack and be gone again, but the growing darkness moved me to remain. I had only to make no noise until the night was fairly come, and trust to the dawn to call me early in the morning. But it was hard to be annoyed by neighbours in such a great hotel. A hollow underneath the oak was my bed. Before I had fed Modestine and arranged my sack, three stars were already brightly shining, and the others were beginning dimly to appear. I slipped down to the river, which looked very black among its rocks, to fill my can, and dined with a good appetite in the dark, for I scrupled to light a lantern while so near a house. The moon, which I had seen a pallid crescent all afternoon, faintly illuminated the summit of the hills, but not a ray fell into the bottom of the glen where I was lying. The oak rose before me like a pillar of darkness, and overhead the heartsome stars were set in the face of the night. No one knows the stars who has not slept, as the French happily put it, à la belle étoile. He may know all their names and distances and magnitudes, and yet be ignorant of what alone concerns mankind, their serene and gladsome influence on the mind. The greater part of poetry is about the stars, and very justly, for they are themselves the most classical of poets. These same far-away worlds, sprinkled like tapers, or shaken together like a diamond dust upon the sky, had looked not otherwise to Roland or Cavalier, when, in the words of the latter, they had no other tent but the sky, and no other bed than my mother earth. All night a strong wind blew up the valley, and the acorns fell pattering over me from the oak. Yet on this first night of October the air was as mild as May, and I slept with the fur thrown back. 
I was much disturbed by the barking of a dog, an animal that I fear more than any wolf. A dog is vastly braver, and is besides supported by the sense of duty. If you kill a wolf, you meet with encouragement and praise. But if you kill a dog, the sacred rights of property and the domestic affections come clamouring round you for redress. At the end of a fagging day, the sharp, cruel note of a dog's bark is in itself a keen annoyance, and to a tramp like myself, he represents the sedentary and respectable world in its most hostile form. There is something of the clergyman or the lawyer about this engaging animal, and if he were not amenable to stones, the boldest man would shrink from travelling afoot. I respect dogs much in the domestic circle, but on the highway or sleeping afield I both detest and fear them. I was wakened next morning, Wednesday, October 2nd, by the same dog, for I knew his bark, making a charge down the bank, and then, seeing me sit up, retreating again with great alacrity. The stars were not yet quite extinguished. The heaven was of that enchanting mild grey-blue of the early morn. A still, clear light began to fall, and the trees on the hillside were outlined sharply against the sky. The wind had veered more to the north, and no longer reached me in the glen. But as I was going on with my preparations, it drove a white cloud very swiftly over the hilltop, and looking up, I was surprised to see the cloud dyed with gold. In these high regions of the air the sun was already shining as at noon. If only the clouds travelled high enough, we should see the same thing all night long, for it is always daylight in the fields of space. As I began to go up the valley, a draught of wind came down it out of the seat of the sunrise, although the clouds continued to run overhead in an almost contrary direction. A few steps farther, and I saw a whole hillside gilded with the sun, and still a little beyond, between two peaks, a centre of dazzling brilliancy appeared floating in the sky, and I was once more face to face with the big bonfire that occupies the kernel of our system. I met but one human being that forenoon, a dark, military-looking wayfarer who carried a game-bag on a baldric. But he made a remark that seems worthy of record, for when I asked him if he were Protestant or Catholic, Oh, said he, I make no shame of my religion, I am a Catholic. He made no shame of it. The phrase is a piece of natural statistics, for it is the language of one in a minority. I thought with a smile of Baville and his dragoons, and how you may ride rough-shod over a religion for a century, and leave it only the more lively for the friction. Ireland is still Catholic, the Cévennes still Protestant. It is not a basketful of law-papers, nor the hoofs and pistol-butts of a regiment of horse that can change one tittle of a ploughman's thoughts. Outdoor rustic people have not many ideas, but such as they have are hardy plants and thrive flourishingly in persecution. One who has grown a long while in the sweat of laborious noons and under the stars at night, a frequenter of hills and forests, an old honest countryman, has in the end a sense of communion with the powers of the universe and amicable relations towards his God. Like my mountain Plymouth brother, he knows the Lord. His religion does not repose upon a choice of logic, it is the poetry of the man's experience, the philosophy of the history of his life. God, like a great power, like a great shining sun, 
has appeared to this simple fellow in the course of years, and become the ground and essence of his least reflections. And you may change creeds and dogma by authority, or proclaim a new religion with the sound of trumpets, if you will. But here is a man who has his own thoughts, and will stubbornly adhere to them in good and evil. He is a Catholic, a Protestant, or a Plymouth brother, in the same indefeasible sense that a man is not a woman, or a woman not a man. For he could not vary from his faith, unless he could eradicate all memory of the past, and in a strict, and not a conventional meaning, change his mind. End of chapter 15